welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 389. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Great story for y'all this week called Night of the Living Potus by Adam Troy Castro. Adam's an American science fiction, fantasy, and horror writer living in Florida. He has more than 80 stories to his credit and has been nominated for numerous awards, including the Hugo, Nebula, and Stoker. These stories include four Spider-Man novels, including the Sinister Six trilogy. In 2009, Castro won the Philip K. Dick Award for his novel Emissaries from the Dead. Castro's fiction has been nominated for eight Nebulas and two Hugos. So without further ado, we bring you Night of the Living Potus by Adam Troy Castro. Presidents have the same lesson to learn, and they all learn it early on the first full morning of their respective administrations. At that point, they have already taken their oaths, already declared their principles to the nation, already enjoyed the first round of celebrations, already settled into what they imagine will be an administration marked by great words and historic deeds. They are all ready for the lesson that will haunt them throughout the remainder of their days in power, giving them the somber gravity that so many people mistakenly attribute to the unimaginable pressures of the job. Nobody knows that this change in them has almost nothing to do with anything they face as chief executive, and everything to do with the ordeal they all survive after their first night sleeping under the White House roof. It will be the same for the next new president, male or female, young or old, Republican or Democrat, warrior or pacifist, idealist or tool of his corrupt backers. For the sake of argument, we posit a man. He's young, robust, charismatic, learned, driven by his vision for a new agenda. He's not been sleeping long. He was kept busy the previous evening by the half-dozen inaugural balls where he and the First Lady had been expected to make their joint appearance. But the need for at least a couple of hours of sleep prior to the onset of his responsibilities drove him and his wife to the presidential bed even as the last of those formals still raged at a hotel across town. He does not dream of his busy next day's itinerary, or of all the terrible mistakes that can torpedo his place in history, or even of standing before a press conference of thousands, naked but for that mouthy bitch from the New York Times, clad in dominatrix gear as she warns, Now remember you asked for this. For this night, at least, he's accomplished all of his waking dreams, and has no room for sleeping ones. Exhausted, he is all but comatose, and incapable of noticing when the Secret Service enters to sedate the First Lady, and quietly hustle her from the residence. He does not know, because he has not yet been told, that this happens before dawn on the very first morning of every new president's administration, and that the operatives who just removed his wife are the very same ones who performed this service for the five most recent administrations. They may be elderly by now, but by God they're efficient. The new president doesn't wake until some dim impulse of his reptilian brain alerts him to a dark silhouette looming over him, 
He opens his eyes, registers the metallic glint of the hatchet beginning its murderous descent, and rolls away just as the pillow behind him erupts in a mushroom cloud of liberated feathers. Cursing, not yet understanding why these pre-dawn hours have become an arena of mortal combat, the new president scrambles away, tumbles off the opposite end of the bed, somehow finds the light switch, and rises to his knees just in time to see his assailant circle the foot of the bed. His eyes, recently touted in National Review as firm and unwavering, became pale, confused things as he registered the familiar, iconic face of his enemy, one all too familiar from dollar bills, textbooks, and commercials for President Day sales, distorted now by the kind of murderous bloodlust that has never been depicted on paintings of this historic figure crossing the Delaware. This is not an imposter, nor an actor, not a crazed assassin with a founding father fetish. This is the real George Washington, down to the wise eyes and lipless mouth miraculously returned to life in a murderous frenzy. He's wearing a blue waistcoat and white leggings, and an expression of undying hatred, and that is all the new president has time to register before he has to scuttle across the floor in his pajamas, screaming for the Secret Service. The Secret Service does not answer his cries for help. When it comes to this important part of every president's first day, they never do. But they do watch on their monitors, and they do nod with approval as the new president uses a lamp snatched off the nightstand to block the next slash from Washington's hatchet. They observe the resourcefulness with which the new president parries another slash, still screaming for the help that they are duty-bound to withhold. They admire this president for rising to the challenge right away, in a manner that so many others have not. That big bully of a Texan, for instance, the one so talented at picking up little dogs by the ears, had whimpered like a girl at this point. The peanut farmer had soiled himself. W had misunderstood the situation completely, imagining himself under attack by the man on the oatmeal box. But the new president is a genuine profile in courage. He stands his ground and he parries another attack, and though the next hammering blow almost knocks him over, he not only manages to regain his fair and balanced position, but also presses his advantage, driving the lamp into Washington's forehead with a crunch loud enough to be heard in Baltimore. Washington drops the hatchet, staggers backward, and collapses onto the new president's bed, adding to it the long list of places where he slept. Heart pounding, the new president staggers over to the bed and stares down at the remains of a face he knows all well as his own. He touches his attacker's cheek with an index finger, expecting to find a mask of some kind, but no, it's flesh all right. Once again, he tries to persuade himself that this is just an assassin who merely happens to look like George Washington, but the vivid reality of the moment argues against that interpretation. It is George Washington. That's when he notices that the First Lady is missing. He's not a romantic man, this new president. He does not love his wife in any goopily adolescent manner, and at this moment cannot recall the last time he told her he loved her. But he has grown used to her presence, and he does count on her guidance in this rarefied enterprise their shared lives have become. The prospect of her trapped somewhere in this legendary house, fighting for her life against, perhaps, a murderous Martha Washington, fills him with the kind of dread no threat to his own life can muster. 
He cries out her name and races to the door, which of course is sealed and will not be opened for him, no matter how furiously he demands to know the meaning of this. Watching this scene play out on the monitors with the senior members of the Secret Service, the new president's chief of staff thinks about his own hidden passion for horror movies, and the rule, well known to enthusiasts, that anybody pounding on a door demanding to be let out is immediately attacked from behind. He watches the shadowy figure as it comes into frame behind the new president and finds himself murmuring, Turn around! Turn around! The new president, sensing something wrong, whirls to confront the not only obnoxious and disliked but now thoroughly deranged face of President John Adams. The new president is not as fanatical a historian as some of his predecessors, but he has seen the portraits. He recognizes who he's facing. Shock paralyzes him until he feels the fingers close around his neck. His air supply already cut off, he braces himself against the locked door, propels himself forward, driving Adams into a 200-year-old cabinet. Adams does not waver. The man who brought the American Revolution into being by sheer force of personality is not to be deterred by a little bruising. The new president feels his world grow black at the edges, but drives Adams into the dresser a second time, and a third. They spin again and hit the floor in a tangle of thrashing chief executive limbs. Still, Adams does not weaken. The new president flails about for a weapon, finds a shard of broken crystal, drives the point into his assailant's eye, and the rest, the coin phrase, is history. Even as he collapses against the bureau, massaging a throat now marked by an angry red line, a new wariness shines in the new president's eyes. He achieved his station in life by knowing how to anticipate trends. He can prognosticate the further course of his mourning without any recourse to pollsters or focus groups or even paid special counsel. He knows who is coming next. And indeed... Here comes Thomas Jefferson, the architect of Monticello, the composer of the Declaration of Independence, and the impregnator of Sally Hemings, perhaps the most articulate man to ever hold the venerable title of president, now reduced to a guttural howl as he advances on the current office holder, wielding his quill pen like a stiletto. Jefferson is a product of the age of reason, and the new president tries to reason with him in kind, certain that these hostilities can be avoided by a few rounds of calm and measured negotiation. But Jefferson's advance is as resolute as his prose was pellucid, and he doesn't even slow as he jabs the implement at the new president's heart. The new president retreats to his right, as so many new presidents are apt to, yowling as the quill rips a gash in his upper bicep. Retreating, also as in the manner of so many new presidents before him, he backs against the wall and finds himself whimpering as the implement that forged nations makes fresh edits to his shoulders, forearms, and cheek. Only when Jefferson draws back with a flourish only possible for one so accomplished at penmanship does the new president finally react to the clear and present danger and counterattack with a body slam that drives the pride of Virginia back, halfway across the room, back onto the bed. Jefferson howls. The new president rips the quill from the great man's hand and drives it screaming into the great man's neck. But that is not the end of it either. The next few hours continue in precisely that vein, all but a few of the invaders, in accordance with their respective marks on history, as unmemorable as assailants as they were as presidents.
Indeed, the new president experiences more than a little difficulty just identifying some of these figures by sight. Only a few stand out from the pack, and they're not always the most dangerous. Andrew Jackson, carrying so many bullets in his body from his vengeful and dual-besotted life that he rattles like a bag of marbles, takes twenty blows on the head before finally succumbing. William Henry Harrison advances only halfway across the bedroom before wheezing, coughing, and then falling flat on his face dead. James Buchanan fights like a girl. Abraham Lincoln, who splits rails as a youth, is a deadly combatant indeed, his woodsman's axe extending the already prodigious reach of his arms. Grover Cleveland, the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms, follows the paradigm set down by most cinematic mad slashers by rising from the statesman-strewn floor, not dead after all, following the brief and ineffective interim of an assault by Benjamin Harrison. By the time the assailants begin to include figures from the 20th century, the new president is gasping, his pajamas in tatters, his skin marred by a dozen serious injuries. He needs all the strength his exhausted body can muster, because these newcomers are among the most dangerous. Sportsman, soldier, and avid hunter Theodore Roosevelt is almost impossible to defeat. The new president shatters almost every valuable antique in the room just to take him down and even then needs to reduce his own fingers to hamburger, just prying the man's jaws from his ankle. The obese William Howard Taft, though slow-moving and short of breath, is almost as formidable, in part because he almost crushes the new president to death with the weight of his own body, in part because the new president, by now wielding the sword of Ulysses S. Grant, inflicts six or seven gaping wounds without once penetrating deep enough to nick any of the man's vital organs. That battle doesn't end until the new president musters the last of his fading strength to force the fat man into the bath tub, which Taft has historically been unable to escape. Wedged in tight, rippling with enraged avoid a pro, Taft can only grope with hands like sausages as the new president fills the tub with water and fries the bastard with a casual toss of the first lady's hair dryer. Calvin Coolidge turns out to have some stuff. He's not as tough as some of the others, but he remains spookily silent, never emitting so much as a grunt as he pursues his dark agenda. Standing over his mangled body, the new president feels certain that he's just dispatched the deadliest of the creatures he'll have to face before the likes of Kennedy and Nixon. But he's wrong. No, the worst foe yet, the most deceptively powerful, turns out to be Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who emerges crawling out from under the bed, his withered and nigh-useless legs not nearly as decisive a factor as the compensating, overdeveloped musculature of his arms, almost falling to the man's first attack due to overconfidence when he cannot escape Roosevelt's powerful grip, the new president squirms free, regains his feet, and enjoys a few relatively easy minutes just strolling out of the New Dealer's way. He puts off the inevitable longer than he truly has to, because taking down Roosevelt, the very symbol of strength over adversity, feels dirtier than anything else he's had to do so far. But there comes a moment for even the greatest president to realize that he's used up every peaceful initiative. He shakes his head sadly, goes to the closets, and gets his golf clubs. After that, things get easier.
The new president has it down to a science now, and he wades like a titan through a bedroom increasingly littered with bodies. He resists a total descent into hysteria by constantly reminding himself that history itself limits the number of attackers remaining. Taking out Kennedy means gaining the height advantage and striking him from behind. Johnson resigns midway through the fight. Nixon is a squirmy, shifty-eyed bastard, a lot like a rabid ferret. He inflicts a number of savage, ravenous bites on the new president's leg before going down from a ceremonial plate to his skull. The new president feels giddy by now, shouts, Normalize relations with this China, you asshole! Ford has the body of a fullback, but keeps tripping over his own two feet. Carter's attack seems perfunctory, despite the bloodlust in his heart. Reagan has the martial arts moves of a man who pretends toughness, but in truth learned all he knows from the movies. Bush the Elder attempts the same moves as Reagan, but can't fake the conviction. Clinton proves almost impossible to pin down, and repeatedly squirms free. Bush the Younger, clad not in the jacket and tie favored by so many of the others, but in a flight suit with a suspicious bulge in the crotch, steps back after landing a couple of early blows, smirks in imagined victory as he declares the fight over, and doesn't even seem to notice as the president puts him down like a dog. Obama is precise and organized, but goes down to repeated merciless jabs from the right. Trump is relentless with the low blows, but is unable to take even the slightest punishment. Even bloody and staggering, he insists that he's the best fighter of all time. But that's it. Now, it's over. Appropriately enough, this is more or less simultaneous with the arrival of dawn. The new president, or what's left of him, stands bloody but unbowed among the unmoving stuff of stamps and monuments, free for the first time to wonder what this has all been about, knowing in his heart that he's just been made privy to some kind of elemental truth, were he only to find sufficient wisdom to discern it. He feels stronger for the experience, somehow, but for some reason he also feels like weeping, his optimism, his dreams of great things, all fading beneath a certain knowledge that his plan for a better future will be as flawed as the others. And somewhere between the time the First Lady arrives to see what's become of her husband, and the time the First Aid crew arrives to patch his wounds and slather makeup over his bruises, and the time his valet arrives to pick out his suit and make him presentable, and the time his chief of staff arrives to assure him that none of what's happened here will impact his appointment schedule, and the time when he can finally stride forth to help guide the destiny of his nation. The new president finally reaches the epiphany he's been looking for. This truth is marching on. Someday there will be a successor, and another successor after that, and another successor after that, and none will never know a lasting peace, for as long as America endures, since all will be pulled from retirement or the grave to appear in this room on the first day of every new administration, to participate in this one savage rite of passage. Because there's only one reason why every new president would have to spend their first day in office weathering the hostility of all the presidents who came before. Because they'll spend the rest of their respective administrations earning it. Looking gray and eminent now, in a way he never has before, 
the new president leaves his most important battlefield and heads toward the Oval Office, his footsteps echoing behind him. Not at all. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Who knew the White House was full of pod people? Apparently, plenty of people. And now you know. Now you know. And here's something else you should know, by the way. The Drabblecast pre-order store is going on right now. Say you missed the Drabblecast Kickstarter and want to get some cool prize incentives that we had there. Say you were a part of the Kickstarter and want to get some extra cool stuff, like an awesome leather Drabblecast logo-embossed keychain with a USB of all our episodes on it, or a Drabblecast zombie unicorn pin. You can still do that. Check out the Drabblecast pre-order store and get in there. Get you some cool swag while we still got bulk orders going on. You'll find a link in our show notes or by doing a search for Drabblecast Reborn pre-order on Google. See what we got for you. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Tristan Tolhurst, who's awesome. Tristan's a Montreal-based painter, illustrator, sometimes writer, and lifelong monster enthusiast, specialist in horror, fantasy, many tentacled things. A graphic designer by day, he draws scary things by night. Follow his work on Instagram at Tristan Draws Monsters. Our program today was brought to you by Bo Kyer, Zimmerman Bledsoe, Melissa Harvey, Tom Baker, Sandra O'Dell, Samantha Henderson, Jason Smith, Jen Fisher, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, the truth is marching on. Raised up in Kentucky in a cabin cold and bare, by the fireside, he got his learning there. Earned his keep by splitting logs, he grew so lean and strong. He could fight against the bully or could right a mighty wrong. Young Dave Lincoln loved all the people. Oh, what a wondrous man was he. What a plain, what a humble man was he. Then he went to Springfield, started practicing the law. Folks began to know his name from Maine to Arkansas. But when the people called him into politics, he went, cause he had a date with destiny to be the president. The young Dave Lincoln loved all the people. Oh, what a wondrous man was he. And his name will remain in memory. When he was elected, or his country to preside, rich or poor to everyone, his door was open wide. And when he felt the sorrow of a nation in distress, what he said will live forever in the Gettysburg Address. The young Abe Lincoln loved all the people. Oh, what a wondrous man was he. What a kind, what an honest man was he. Then one dark and fateful night that history will recall He went to the theater in his silk hat and a shawl And there a shot was fired by a scoundrel known as Booth 
And Abe Lincoln died because he stood for liberty and truth. Young Abe Lincoln loved all the people. Oh, what a wondrous man was he. Gave his life so that people could be free. There stands a monument today People come to honor him from near and far away And though it's nigh a century that he's been dead and gone His truth goes 